This is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Rodney Foxworth doesn't steer clear of tough problems. In the wake of the pandemic and the death of George Floyd, Foxworth's organization, Common Future, redistributed 10% of its operating budget in one week into a rapid COVID response fund. With Common Future, Foxworth says he's working to build a more inclusive economy and his work is driven by a duty to community. Anything worth doing is hard and difficult and challenging. The work of progress, the work of moving towards justice is just gonna be really difficult and challenging. I am not someone that is motivated by like how hopeful or optimistic I am. I am someone who's motivated by what is the right thing to do and it's almost like an obligation. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Solvers, a new podcast by the Skoll Foundation in partnership with Aspen Ideas. Rodney Foxworth's story is featured in the debut episode of Solvers, which you'll hear in full today. Solvers features interviews with people who are dealing with big, global problems that are entrenched, complex, messy, and always urgent. But none of that stops them. The show is hosted by Courtney Martin and Guhe Mora. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. We're excited to introduce you to Solvers and hope you'll jump over to the Solvers feed and subscribe. So here's the first episode. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Solvers. I'm Courtney Martin. I'm a journalist by training. I co-founded the Solutions Journalism Network, which is trying to get journalists all over the world to cover solutions as compellingly and rigorously as we do problems just what this podcast is up to. I'm also someone who has consulted within philanthropy and grown pretty cynical about a lot of what we call quote-unquote social change, honestly. And I'm Gurhe Mara. I live in Nairobi, Kenya, and coming from a part of the world where you're constantly cast as the problem that other people need to come and solve, um, I've, I've spent my whole life thinking about what does it mean to solve deeply complex issues when you're, you're fighting at so many different levels? So it's not just what is presented to you, but there's so many underlying complex systems that underpin social change. We actually didn't know one another before we started recording this podcast. It was a bit of a blind date. So I've got to be honest, Courtney, it wasn't completely blind on my end because I was familiar with your work. Um, I read something that you wrote, and this phrase has stuck with me for almost a year and a half since I read it, and it was the reductive seduction of other people's problems. That entire article is something that I've shared, I think, with every single person I know because it just so succinctly put into to place the idea of solving other people's problems will always be easy, but when you look at your own and you look in your own backyard, you start to realize how difficult Uh, some of these issues are. Oh, man. Well, that makes me feel like a million bucks. Did you realize when they said you're going to be co-hosting this with with Courtney that I was the same person who'd written that? I did, yeah. Yeah. And and it was a big part of why I was so excited to do this. Oh, that's so nice. Thanks, Guhei. It's cool, though. I feel like we've been able to kind of in real time get to know each other and have these conversations over the course of recording the podcast about how we think about social change, you know, how we hear these interviews sometimes differently and sometimes very similarly. 
it's been a, a pretty cool way to get to know someone. It's almost like we're in our own little uh, friendship reality TV <laughs> show. <laughs> well, let's see how it goes. So this is a podcast which features stories about how social innovators are tackling the world's biggest problems to build a better future. On this podcast, Guhei and I have conversations with people who are dealing with problems which are entrenched, complex, messy, and always urgent. But none of that stops them. They've rolled up their sleeves and gotten straight to work. I'm someone who's really attracted to people who don't fall in love with solvability, but fall in love with complexity. So for me, the people who are part of this podcast are staring straight into the black hole of some of the most wicked problems that exist, not because they think they can fix them, but because they think it's their moral duty to try. For most of the solvers Guhei and I talk to on the show, complexity is their joy. It helps them wake up in the morning. Right. And the thing about complexity is, how do you remain resilient in the face of immensely complex problems that have spanned generations. So if you'll allow me to, to get a little bit philosophical for a minute, I think about Dr. King's words about how the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice and how each of us don't get to walk the entire journey, but we make the path clear for those who are coming behind us. And I don't think all human beings are built that way. So when you get to meet them, it's a fascinating conversation. For people who, like Courtney said, can stare into that abyss, that complexity, that difficulty, and still keep going to work on those issues that are bigger than their own lifetimes, I think it's an extraordinary and inspiring thing. This episode today is my conversation with Rodney Foxworth. Now, Rodney is the CEO of Common Future, a really dynamic organization trying to build a more inclusive economy with a special emphasis on closing the racial wealth gap. Rodney is philosophical, but he's also deeply pragmatic. And we're at this turning point in America, you know, the pandemic, racial reckoning. It's all led to more of a focus on racial inequality. Rodney's work hits right at the bullseye center of that reckoning. Okay, so capitalism is supposed to, by default, be inclusive, right? It's it's a free economy. You're supposed to be able to sell your goods and sell your labor. Uh, in, in <laughs> I could just tell how much you don't believe any of this as, as you're saying, Guhei, but please continue. Sure. But so where, where, where does it miss it? How, why, why isn't the economy as inclusive as it should be, especially in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, that's exactly what Rodney gets at is like sort of taking off the emperor's clothes saying, you know, we we talk a big game about capitalism and meritocracy in America, but how well has it ever really worked? And of course, the answer is not well at all. Um, by design, it's been the opposite of inclusive. So yeah, he's he's a visionary working at that center. I'd be curious to hear whether you think he's he's getting at it in a way that's that feels satisfying. I'm excited to hear your conversation. Uh, right. So here it is, my conversation with Rodney Foxworth, CEO of Common Future. So you wrote a piece called The System Was Built to Break Black People back in June of last year in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. And it, it began with you in your apartment. You were listening to what you call the steady drumbeat of helicopters and sirens as protests broke out. You, you described feeling a kind of deja vu. You'd seen this before. Can you talk about what you were feeling in that moment? So in that moment, Courtney, I was just transported back to 2015 in Baltimore, where after the death of Freddie Gray and police custody, 
the National Guard was brought into Baltimore. And the National Guard activated after the U.S. city of Baltimore erupted in violence on Monday. Hundreds of rioters looted shops and burned buildings following the funeral of a 25-year-old black man who died after he was injured in police custody. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan announced the emergency measures, including the imposition of a curfew beginning Tuesday night at a press conference. I've not made this decision lightly. The National Guard represents a last resort in order to restore order. And I was just reflecting and feeling in my bones, like the, the fear and insecurity that I was having as it related to people that looked like me, specifically young black men. I was hearing just the, the sirens, I was hearing the helicopters all over again. I was transported back to that moment where I just felt that vulnerability, right? I just felt that vulnerability of what could happen to me simply for being black, for being a black man in this country. Can you talk a little bit about how Baltimore shaped you? It's a place of Black excellence and Black brokenness, as you've talked about. And I know you had a really strong, beautiful community there. Can you talk a little bit about how Baltimore shaped who you are today? Yeah, Baltimore is this wonderful place. And I think it demonstrates all of the challenges that we face as a country. You know, you see systemic racism, you see over-policing and mass incarceration, you see the effects of economic dislocation, you see the impacts of really the lack of regard from a power perspective of those that are in entrenched power as it relates to Black people. I didn't, I didn't know all of that coming up as a kid, of course, right? Um, I had this really beautiful experience. I have two wonderful parents, working class Black family, and all I knew was that they were behind me, that they had supported me. And at the same time, there's one story that I have become much more comfortable sharing um, to give an example of how Baltimore shaped me and led me to the, the path that I've taken up. When I was in the third grade, I was accused by a teacher of being unable to read and of cheating. Apparently, my test scores were too good. Um, I was a shy kid. I didn't participate much. I didn't raise my hand or anything. But for context, Courtney, I was like a peer mediator. You know, I was a hallway monitor. Like I was that kid. And and yet this teacher, this white teacher accused me of being unable to read and cheating. Now, my mom understood that this could not have possibly been the case because she had been reading to me and helping me learn to read since, you know, I came out of the womb effectively. And so my mom really began to investigate this and uncover that this particular teacher had been doing this to Black boy students that she had and uncover this, this troubling trend and then organize with some other parents to actually get this teacher fired from the, from the school and to actually bring light to the fact that this had happened to so many Black boys at this particular school. I share that because I think it's it's really a, an example that a lot of people don't think about often. They see someone like me who's had a lot of success and has built up a lot of privileges. And yet I was really victimized by the system at such a young age, right? And uncovering that so many of my peers, Black men, Black women in particular, who were sort of categorized as being unintelligent, 
they're you know tracking for special needs classes and things like that, but then go on to become valedictorians of their colleges or work at NASA as scientists. But at some point, the system had categorized them as not being able to participate academically. And that's pretty consistent as a narrative. And so, you know, witnessing a young age where I was outside of my mom's office, she works for the court system in Baltimore, recognizing that across from me as I'm sitting outside of her office and seeing this line of Black men outside of the courts waiting to have their fates determined by the judicial system. Um, having those sets of experiences just encouraged me to leverage whatever privileges I have to be able to put these things to light for people, to illuminate what people might not be able to see or experience themselves. Oh, I'm so struck by that story about the third grade experience, because I think about kind of one of the things you quote a lot in your beautiful writing is W.E.B. Du Bois' idea of black folks. Um, You know, what does it feel like to be a problem, to be seen as a problem in America? So much of your work seems like it's about showing the ways in which black folks and indigenous folks and brown folks are actually a solution or the solution in many cases. Uh, And what could have been a very individual sort of horrible shaming experience as inaccurate as it was became collective. You know, your mom was the solution. She turned it into this collective experience um, and asked who else has been victimized by this teacher? How do we take our Mm -hmm. own collective power and make sure it doesn't happen again? Um, Which just seems like a lot of what your work at Common Future is all about now with the racial wealth gap being so real. Um, I feel like so many people are led to believe it's their individual failing that they aren't wealthier, that we live in this country where, you know, everyone can pick themselves up by their bootstraps. So if they haven't done it, somehow that's their fault. And instead of saying like, no, actually, there's systemic stuff going on here and there are systemic solutions. And we ourselves, as people of color in this country, can be the architects of those solutions. Anyway, can you just talk a little bit about that sort of seeing your work as in that lineage of collective problem solving and helping folks feel like the solution instead of the problem? Yeah, and I think, Courtney, the other side of that is that... um people also think that their success is individual as well. And that's the other side of it, right? So that means that it's not just as individuals, people place the burden of their quote unquote lack of success based on their, did they not work hard enough? Did they not get the right education? But society as a whole and the system reinforces that. Why does a place like Baltimore, for example, have nearly a half a billion dollars dedicated to policing? Then why does the state of Maryland spend nearly $300 million a year incarcerating mostly African-Americans in the city of Baltimore? It's nearly a billion dollars of resources that are really focusing on Black people in a place like Baltimore. This happens across the country, of course, but that's not rendered visible by most people. And so society and the system says, well, it's because that young Black man didn't study hard enough. Well, then the story that I just shared with you indicates that despite the fact that I was checking all the boxes, I could have been set in a path if not for the fact that my mother recognized that and then collectively organized with others. I could have been set on a path where that could have been me. That could have been me moving on that pathway towards um, being incarcerated and those sort of things simply because that's how the system operates. And so in terms of the work at Common Future, we certainly feel as though it's a lineage of really what, quite frankly, people of color have always been doing, right? I'm really careful when people um, ask me, Rodney, what are some of the new solutions? What are some of the new models that we should be considering? None of it's new. 
right? It's under-recognized and it's not been considered. Black folks, people, I mean, people in color generally have been, indigenous folks in, uh, in particular, have been taking approaches that are about the community and collective approaches since the beginning. Let's dig in a little bit to just this racial wealth gap question on a foundational level, because I know some listeners may not be as familiar. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what the racial wealth gap is and where Common Future comes in as one way of disrupting it? Yeah, I think that um, I'm in some ways people are starting to understand. I mean, the fact that when COVID really was beginning to hit in the States, um, I knew and many of my peers and my colleagues certainly knew that African-American and other people of color were going to be disproportionately impacted, not because of anything that black or brown people had done, but because the systems, the healthcare systems, the, the communities in which these populations disproportionately live were all in a place of vulnerability to begin with, and that COVID would expose all these things. When we look at our work at Common Future, we know that there are people and organizations that have already been doing this type of work for a long time. They need more and more resources. They've been under-resourced for so many years since the beginning, right, that have been looking at opportunities in worker ownership or community-owned assets, ownership of land in the South and other parts of the country, for example, that are so incredibly important. And yet from a systemic level, we don't, we still haven't really grappled with how we got here to begin with, right? A racial wealth gap. I mean, it's actually, it's interesting because even to call it a gap is really a little bit of a misnomer. I mean, it's significantly a misnomer because gap makes it seem like, oh, it's, it's really achievable to close that, right? We really have a chasm. I mean, it's not, it's, it's something that's been based on centuries of systems working against, as I wrote in that piece, you know, the system was built to break black people. That I do believe that. I've never thought about this. Such a good point. The other thing that suggests is this gap. We're closing the gap to some desirable place at which, let's say, like white men generally hold wealth. And in fact, you talk a lot about giving up wealth, giving up power. So it's like the gap suggests that whatever the top line is, is actually the appropriate line when in fact there is an outrageous amount of hoarding going on. That means we need to rebalance, not just close some sort of perceived gap, right? That's right. We need to redistribute. We need to rebalance. We need to give things up. Right. And I think that is fundamentally um, in opposition to the mainstream narrative that you asked about. We started this conversation in terms of, you know, individual uplift. Well, no one succeeds on their own and no one fails on their own, obviously, and particularly in populations, systemic. And so that's something that I think I'm curious, Courtney, about like how much more of that narrative will get deconstructed over time. I still have a lot of questions about that, despite the fact that people are acknowledging more and more these disparities. I certainly don't believe enough people who've actually begun to ask themselves, you know, particularly if there's someone or institution that is considerable wealth, and even if they don't have considerable wealth, but have a set of privileges that most people do not have, what are you willing to give up, Right. Right. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because you and I have a lot of rich conversations about philanthropy and all of the potential, you know, problems and solutions within contemporary philanthropy. And one of your jobs is sitting in those rooms across from folks who have a lot of wealth and trying to convince them to redistribute it so that you can give it away to a bunch of amazing grassroots leaders all over the country. And so, I mean, bring us into one of those rooms. You're sitting there, you're trying to convince someone to give up some wealth. 
What's like the most frustrating things about those conversations? Is the money following the talk? Is it performative? Are we actually seeing philanthropy shift? I guess the starting point is just take me into that room. Take us into that conversation. What annoys the heck out of you? So so one of the more uh, frustrating things that happens when I'm in these rooms with philanthropists, and I'll give you this, this is a aged example because it happened five years ago, but I just remember being in the offices of a CEO um, of a major institution, um, very extremely wealthy individual who pointed out to me that he said to me, Rodney, if you just spoke less about race and racism, I could help you more. If you just spoke less about race and racism. The reason why I bring that up is that oftentimes, most of the times, I'm not having conversations with people that have enough lived experience to understand the challenges themselves and have a direct connection to it. So that is one of the biggest frustrating you know, points of, of my general career when I'm working with wealthy individuals, institutions to move resources. One thing that I have really been thinking a lot more about, Courtney, and um, we're really modeling as an organization, though, is it's not enough for us to simply get resources from you know, some powerful, wealthy individual institutions to then redistribute. But we also need to be thinking about as an organization at Common Future, how we're building our own resources, right, that are independent from those that have significantly more power and wealth. And then helping the folks in our network, all these amazing leaders and organizations and these different communities, help them to develop community wealth themselves so that they can actually have enough economic power to be, again, independent from these decision makers that are really distant from the communities in which we care so much about and that we live in. Right. So, you know, how do we go from playing this Robin Hood role and in such a broken economic landscape to just having a whole different wealth paradigm in which people can build what they need to build for their communities? And let's talk a little bit more about these people in particular because we've referenced them a few times. Can you pick one incredible person that's in the Common Future Network and give us a sense of, you know, what they do, describe them? You've you've often said they're kind of like de facto mayors of their communities. They may not be people with a huge amount of institutional authority or fancy titles, uh, but they're people that everyone knows, right? This is the person who gets things done. Can you tell us the story of one of those people and the kind of collective uplift they're creating? I think about Jessica Norwood, who is a Common Future Fellow. She launched something called the Runway Project a few years back that really principally focuses on addressing the racial wealth gap as it relates to creating new businesses for Black folks, right? Because we know that most entrepreneurs, small business owners, they're able to, if they don't draw from friends and family, they draw from their own savings and these sort of things. But considering the racial wealth gap, that's much harder for African-Americans. And so, you know, Jessica is a Black woman, grew up in the South, really has an understanding politically and economically about the conditions of disparities that happen, but also knows about the Black brilliance that happens particularly with Black women entrepreneurs, which, by the way, are the fastest growing population of entrepreneurs, though they get the least amount of resources and investment. I think about someone like um, my friend Derek Brazil, who's in Cincinnati, started with a few of his friends, um, Mortar, which is mostly, it was founded by three Black men. It's all Black people who are dedicated to supporting the development of Black businesses in Cincinnati. 
think about Tim Lampkin, um, Higher Purpose Co. in Clarksdale, uh, Mississippi. Again, another Black-led institution, mostly millennial-led as well, uh, that's been focused on building community wealth in the Delta. And, and so I think about people like that. It's clear how brilliant they are, and yet getting resources to them should be far easier than it actually is, right? Um, and so, so those are the types of folks that I talk about when we think about our network at Common Future. What makes it so hard to get them resources? Well, again, I think really even identifying a problem, even though the fact that we've gone through this year in which more and more people are understanding it, I, at the end of the day, I do believe that um, there's a distrust of Black and Brown folks mobilizing and moving resources from when it comes to the folks who are in power. There's just a lot of what I like to say, moving the goalposts in a way. Like I even experienced myself where, you know, I always find myself com- somewhat comparing myself to like a white male leader at other organizations. And I always see like the goalpost seems to keep moving for me, <laughs> right? Things that I have to seemingly do much more to get the same level of investment or actually considerably less investment um, than, than my white male peers. The system does not invest in people in, in the ways that really acknowledges their value. And instead, it's built on extracting and exploiting. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, your goalpost metaphor, because in some ways, it's the opposite. It's like a tyranny of low expectations within philanthropy of how much money you should be giving away or how quickly or with how much trust. Um, And when the pandemic hit, you guys gave away what was proportionately for you a lot of money very quickly. And you wrote a piece saying, basically, it can be done. And you talked about how you gave away the money very quickly. And... You know, but we don't ask that of most philanthropic organizations. Like, why can't they give away money faster? And when we do ask, they often say, it's hard. Like, it's really hard to do that. That's sort of the refrain within philanthropy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how do we keep doing things like what you do to make social proof for philanthropists that, no, you can give away a lot of money very fast. There are a lot of great people like the ones you just named who are happy to receive your money. You know, Courtney, it's uh, first of all, always um, it's such a frustrating thing when people say they just don't know where to put the money. They just have no idea. And I get it, actually, because we're such a segregated country. And I think that's part of it. So I always say that um, we, even without outside of the context of common future, I always would say that I could just, just toss out a rock into my network and be able to identify some amazingly talented, dedicated, committed black woman that could that's deserving of investment in for her business or her enterprise. Like it's not hard for me. It's just not. But I recognize that's because of how our social dynamics are built up. But it, and that's intentional. It makes sense that if you're a foundational investment entity that's exclusively white or mostly white and certainly likely exclusively white in the decision-making um, and a resource allocation side of things, you're likely not going to know black and brown folks. Full stop. Um, that said, if for context for folks who don't understand how foundations operate, uh, private foundations, um, you know, they're only required legally by IRS to uh, distribute five percent of their endowment. And so, what we did earlier in the in, in 2020, when COVID was hitting and obviously having adverse impact in the communities that our network serves. We said, listen, we'll take 10% of our operating budget and apply that to 
uh, COVID rapid response fund. And we did that within a week's time. And so we wanted to say, listen, if this small nonprofit can figure out a way within a week's time to distribute 10% of its general operating budget, why can't a more resource institution, the foundation do it too? But for me, I think about it, it's about the relationships. We were able to do that so quickly because we already knew people. We already knew the folks. We already been in community with them. We already trusted them. We trusted them, right? They trusted us. We trusted them. And it really made it a much simpler pro- uh, process. Uh, we distributed another about $5 million in 2020. It was really important for us to model for others, right? For them to understand what is actually possible. What is the case that you would make to, let's say, you know, a typical sort of white male leader of a foundation who's sitting on a huge, you know, massive endowment and is genuinely moved by this moment? Um, Let's say they're in the for-profit space, maybe an investor who's used to investing in white startup entrepreneur types um, and, and is really moved. Like, what would you say to those guys what would you tell them, given that social segregation is real, right? They really might not know a lot of uh, people outside of their demographic to give to or invest in. It's awkward for them, right? I mean, even if they have good intentions, they may not know where to start. What would you tell them? Yeah, it is really challenging. It's really difficult. And uh, at the same time, I want to believe that the people that you're talking about, they've done some hard things already themselves (laughs) and can actually learn a bit to understand that they need to be trusting other people need to do a lot of reading i need to get a lot of get proximate to these challenges as as much as they can you've built a multi-billion dollar enterprise based on identifying problems to solve you can learn about the racial wealth gap on your own right (laughs) you can figure that out Um, not to like sort of like do these like academic exercises but actually don't burden other people of color to do that, to take you on that journey. Now, trust them so you give up that power to give up those resources, but don't burden them to be, you know, have to educate you through a process, right? Because on the flip side of it, as a, I mean, I have only been a black man, right, Courtney? I don't, I don't know what it's like. I don't know what it's like to be a white man, but what I can tell you is that um, I've basically spent most of my life having to figure out white people. I've had to do that in my life. And so, um, and I think most black people will say, yeah, you know, you've got to be, you learn that you have quickly that you have to figure these things out. Whew, you're trying to solve some very small problems, right? I mean, geez, vastly broken systems of how wealth is earned and distributed, deep racial segregation of our society. Like, I'm listening to all of these massive themes that are surfaced by this conversation. And I don't know, I'm I'm a little, I'm not surprised given that you are your mother's son, that you're undaunted by these things, but it does sound hard. It sounds like we're in this interesting moment where in theory, as you said, there's some opening up, there's some waking up, there's some, you know, particularly white folks asking really hard questions of themselves and about institutional power. But can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how hopeful are you in the middle of taking on such huge problems, but at also such an interesting moment? Are you feeling hopeful? Are you feeling exhausted? Are you sick of the performative stuff? Like, how do you how do you actually feel like people are shifting? Hmm. There's a lot in those in that question, Courtney. I'll, but I'll give you the honest response. So. I, I am I am hopeful. I'm optimistic. I am those things. But here's the truth of it. Anything worth doing is hard and difficult and challenging. The work of progress, the work of built like moving towards justice is just going to be really difficult and challenging. 
full stop. Um, and what I will say is that I am not someone that is motivated by like how hopeful or optimistic I am. I am someone who's motivated by what is the right thing to do. And it's almost like an obligation, right? It's a beautiful struggle. So, so my response to your question is that I think it, in the, in the, in the, in our time as people, we will solve these things. I don't know how much of that will be solved in my lifetime. And I'm totally okay with that because I feel that I'm a part of a, a lineage in a community, a history um, of just moving towards progress. And I think this is part of the thing that honestly, I think about from the context of like, if, if for me, if I were driven by hope and optimism, that wouldn't be enough for me, right? I am driven by my commitment and love of the people that I am in community with and serve, right? And that to me is more than enough. Um, and, and so my hope is that even with the work of Common Future, when, we, when you frame it out, we're not really trying to solve things. What we're trying to do is demonstrate for audiences, for stakeholders, for people to know that like Black women like Jessica Norwood exist. And actually, there are pl- there's so many that's like a, that, that, that they're deserving of investment, that if we can just really demonstrate that for people, that is one way for more awareness to be raised, for more considerations for people to challenge themselves, for hopefully that can help people consider to give up their privileges, to give up some of their power, right? And that also, that also means some of their actual <laughs> financial resources or their economic well-being um, in, in so many ways. So I hope, so that's my response to your, your question. Um, you know, I, I, I just don't, I'm just motivated by uh, doing what's, what's right um, and, and being a part of that trajectory towards justice. Well, you know, I've thought and written so much about the moral imperative for white folks, you know, that I do believe there's a spiritual wound at the center of white people who have more than their share. And there's something about growing up with that and living with it in this world that actually does damage us. And so, you know, it's funny. I feel like we're sort of getting to this place of like, how do you convince people to change? It's it's not about hope. It's not about optimism. It's just like, do the right thing, which is probably the worst slogan ever. Returning to your childhood, your mother used to read a poem to you when you were young um, that Langston Hughes had a famous line in it, you know, life for me ain't been no crystal stair. People probably remember that from like a fifth grade classroom at some point. Will you read the the poem for us? So, yeah. So my mom used to read this to me um, like most nights when I was a toddler, um, which is how she all this. I mean, because my mom would read to me all the time and help me read. So this is why she knew that her son actually was a very proficient reader and, and read above grade level in third grade. But I will read this uh, Mother to Son by Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes is my mother's uh, favorite writer of all time. Well, son, I'll tell you. Life for me ain't been no crystal stair. It's had tacks in it and splinters and boards torn up and places with no copper on the floor, bare. But all the time, I've been a climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners and sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So boy, don't you turn back. Don't you set down those steps, cause you find it's kinda hard. Don't you fall now, for I still going, honey. I still climbing, and life for me ain't been no crystal stair. Oh, 
it's it's just so beautiful, um, so beautiful how you read it. And and what does that what does that poem mean in light of your work now? And in what way are you going in the dark? Ooh, you know, I think this 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 poem and just like honestly, like when I think about my parents and just so many people that I know who have done so much to make sure that I have the opportunities that I've had to actually even do the work that I do. I realize that this poem has been so instrumental for me. And it's like, it sort of like sets a philosophy in a worldview that I have to keep on going. I just have to keep on going. It's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. And that there's a lineage of people that I'm connected to that don't have the good fortune and privileges that I have. I, I owe it to them, right? To keep blazing a path of progress. And to be honest, my path might have been easier than theirs. It's really been uh, instrumental to kind of shaping my perspective. You know, for me, as hard as my work is, honestly, I, I, I think it still pales in comparison, comparison to, you know, the work that my parents have had to do, right? Well, I'm so grateful for you, Rodney, for your leadership and your friendship. I think you're such a visionary and such a gorgeous writer, as you know, since the first time we ever met. And I've just always been so excited every time a new piece of your writing comes out that I get to read it and... We're just so grateful to have you in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Courtney. And I I so appreciate your friendship and um, obviously your brilliance. And so I'm always delighted to be in conversation with you. And hopefully I'll see you around the lake sometime. That was an incredible interview. And that Langston Hughes poem right at the end, it really got to me. I think what struck me about this entire interview was this thing that Rodney said about hope and optimism being exhaustible, but that duty to community is what really keeps you going. And not just the community that you have around you currently, but to community that is intergenerational, community that's come before you and the community that might come after you. So I loved hearing about his solving process. Yeah, he totally reminds me of that phrase, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. Like, can't you just feel Rodney's like grandmothers and great grandmothers and, um, you know, just kind of looking down at him or, or wherever they are and feeling that he is such a representation of, of their wildest dreams, that he is really using his life force to create a different world. I find him so moving and and like you said just truly inspiring you just heard the first episode of solvers a new podcast from the skull foundation in partnership with aspen ideas subscribe to solvers wherever you listen to podcasts and in the coming weeks you'll hear from incredible people around the globe like infectious disease expert christian hoppy activist and community organizer alessandra orofino and esther arma whose work focuses on racial healing Solvers is produced by Golda Arthur with help from Jessica Flutie, Ava Hartman, Marcy Krivenin, Zach Slobig, and me. We'll be back next week with an all-new Aspen Ideas To Go episode. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for joining me.